I had a request from a regular reader of Cliven.com and The Plain Dealer today to do our endorsements earlier because people are voting earlier. And I had to explain to him that we are somewhat at the mercy of the candidates who have pushed the endorsement interviews to these final weeks. And we're doing a bunch of them. We did one yesterday, which is first up on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Courtney Astolfi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. Let's get straight to the endorsement interview. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost and his challenger Jeff Crossman appeared before the editorial board of Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer for an endorsement interview Tuesday. Lisa, what were the highlights of the conversation, which took place via video on Microsoft Teams, so kind of face-to-face? Yeah, uh, it was a quite a spirited uh, conversation at times. Um, I We did learn that Dave Yost is a listener of this podcast, although he admonished you, Chris. What exactly <laughs> did he say to you? No, no, he didn't admonish. I, look, I, it was really interesting what he said. He goes, look, Chris, I, I am a sometime listener of the podcast, and I know that you, and I think when he said you, he was speaking collectively to the editorial board, have disagreements with some of what I do, but I hope you'll endorse me even listing what those disagreements were. I thought it was a very kind of mature way to say, I've heard some of the stuff you said about me on the podcast, but I still think I deserve your endorsement. <laughs> and we'll have to see how that plays out. I believe that's running on Sunday. We already know, but we're going to keep it a secret. Um, yeah. So this was very spirited and his his Democratic challenger, State Representative uh, Jeff Crossman, came out with guns blazing. I mean, just after they introduced themselves, he immediately attacked Yost for a culture of corruption, pointing specifically to House Bill 6 and the out from that and also the electronic classroom of tomorrow. He says there's been no effort to root out corruption. He brought up nursing home bailouts and then so on and so forth. But Yost came back and says, hey, I was the one that went to court on House Bill 6. I stopped the nuclear bailout and the decoupling provision. He says I kept $2.3 billion off of, you know, Ohioans utility bills because of this. Other, obviously abortion was a big touch point. At some point we had to kind of, Chris had to jump in and, and blow the referee whistle because they were talking over each other and getting rather spirited. But, uh, you know, Crossman accused Dave Yost of not knowing how the fetal heartbeat law that sent that 10 year old to Indiana for an abortion works. He said, you know, there were exceptions for emergency, you know, care or for the life of the mother. And uh, Yost came back and said, you know, I, I don't know. I, his, his his answer was a little muddled to me. I mean, he said that he was sorry that he called this whole story about the 10-year-old a fabrication on Fox News, but he said that it was a single-sourced story. That was his reason for, you know, denying its existence, I guess. But he says he feels bad about it. And he says that the law is clear, you know, that there were medical exceptions, but why this 10-year-old girl had to go to Indiana, I really don't know. Well, I look, Crossman came right out and, and he was somewhat rude and civil. I mean, when I had to shut it down, it wasn't mm-hmm. Yost who was being rude. It was Crossman. And he said right up front, Betsy apologized for mis- misidentifying Yost as auditor. And Yost very <laughs> with a little smile said, Well, I'm attorney general now. But <laughs> and and Betsy apologized and Crossman immediately interrupted and said, See how easy it is to apologize, mm-hmm. which was a bit of a, a, a mm-hmm. cheap shot. 
I, I was surprised. You know, we talked later about how unflappable Dave mm-hmm. Yost is. And it's partly because he's he's condescending, but he's a very smart guy. And in he and so when he's talking, he's speaking from a position of real authority on his knowledge. The sad thing for him, he never did apologize. It would have been the easiest thing to do to say, I spoke way too soon on that case. I shouldn't have gone on Fox News. That was a big mistake. I wouldn't do it again. And I think it would have blown over. But because he kept maintaining in the weeks after it was OK, it became a thing. And really, it was the one thing Crossman mm-hmm. had on him. And how many times did did uh, Yost in this conversation correct mm-hmm. Crossman for a misapplication of the law? And largely, Yost mm-hmm. was correct. Yeah, there was a lot of that, you know, each accusing the other of not knowing the law. But Yost definitely came out on top on that. There was quite a bit of conversation about the independent state legislature theory that's rumbling around mostly on the right. And this would say that the state legislature has the right to, you know, set, you know, uh, political districts without interference from the courts. Dave Yost calls it a plausible legal theory, but he has some issues on it and he wants to wait on the a Supreme Court ruling on this. I believe it's a North Carolina case. And uh, Mr. Crossman says, well, you know, judges don't have the right to review anything from Georgia. He finds that this independent state legislature cuts the judges out and he finds it an alarming, uh, alarming theory. Yeah, the but the U.S. Supreme Court will ultimately rule if that is the law of the land. And then if that's the law of the land, the only way to change that would be to change the, the on the federal side. Uh, it was an interesting discussion on mm-hmm. that point. I, I, all in all, I, I mean, it was mostly mm-hmm. civil. Crossman, his main point seemed to be, I'm not Dave Yost. I would be very different from Dave Yost. I didn't hear a whole lot from him. On what? I did ask a question at the end looking forward because a lot of the debate was looking back on, hey, what would you do to be ready for the possibility of cheating with mm-hmm. sports gambling? You know, all the sports teams are going to have sports books and there's th- there's a possibility there that teams could start to do things differently because of the money to be made. Uh, and you didn't you, you didn't get much of an answer from Crossman. He turned it into corruption mm-hmm. questions. It's like, I'm not asking about corruption. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about cheating. And Yost basically said it's not the attorney generals. The legislature decided not to put the attorney general in, in charge of that. And that he did not have a problem mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, it was. I think. It, it anyway, was. interesting. No, well, I was sorry? just going to say it was one of the more interesting um, and informative uh, endorsement interviews that we've had lately. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy Pelzer's written a story about it. And I, I do have to say, I'm amazed at how many times in these endorsement interviews, the candidates tell us how they listen to this podcast. <laughs> it's an influential podcast. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Was there any pragmatic reason for Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish and Council President Pernell Jones Jr. to summarily withdraw from a collaborative committee planning for a new county jail? Or was it pettiness? They did not get their way. Laura, I felt like they grabbed their toys and said they're going home. I, I, that's kind of what I thought too, but I don't, it doesn't seem out of character for some of these officials. And I can see why they did it because they felt the whole process had to start over anyway. There's no consensus on how to move forward. They're not being listened to. Um, Obviously, Budish is going to be out of office. Wait, 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 wait. They were listened to. Everybody had 
a seat well, at the table. True. I, I just they mean just they're not going to get like, their way. Right? Yeah, they didn't like that they didn't get their way, so they said, "Nan and in a boo boo, I'm going home." It, I go, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Um, I, I found this story by Caitlin Durbin really interesting because it just gets at how this process got so derailed. And they said their decision was over a fatal disagreement over the committee's purpose. They said that 12-member body was meant to advise the executive and council on how to improve conditions in the jail, but not to supersede the county's authority to do whatever it felt best. So I think they felt overruled by this group, which obviously includes people from the city of Cleveland, uh, the from the prosecutor's office and the judges. And they, they're like, well, we're the bosses of you. Just, you know, we get, we control the purse strings. We get to do what we want to do. But what's really interesting is they only sent this to the County officials and they singled out prosecutor, Michael Malley, basically saying, you know, you're wrong. And so in that sense, it is really petty because these people, they should all be working together, even if they disagree for the good of the county and the good of the inmates and the good of the people who work there. And it does feel like, you know, I didn't get my way, so I'm giving up. But this, there's this no real is, path forward now. This is, yeah, there is. We have a new executive coming. Well, that's, that's true. Exactly. I'm saying it's, we've got a very is. clear path forward. This is revisionist history. This was not meant to be an advisory committee. Armand Budish came over and sat with our editorial board and said he has put together a panel of everybody who's interested to come up with the consensus. They did come up with a consensus not to buy a toxic site for the jail. They were outvoted. They wanted to buy the poisonous toxic site for the jail. Others did not. So they didn't like what happened and they played this game. What doesn't make any sense here, Laura, is they didn't have to do anything. The election right. is in less than two weeks. So Chris Ronane or Lee Weingart will be the next county executive. Within days of the election, they will start talking to the people with an interest in the jail. They already are kind of talking about it and move forward. So they didn't have to do this. It's It just seems like they're trying to make a statement and that statement is mostly saying we're childish and we we lost and we don't like it. So we're leaving. And they're saying they're trying. I don't know. Maybe it is revisionist history, right? Because they want to put like this is our point of view and we want people to hear it. And they're saying, you know, this jail is going to cost so much more money because you guys didn't act when you should have. And I mean, Mike Gallagher is on that side. But what but I'm they did everything they could to 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 have that debate. They, it, they made that debate over and over and over again. They used a false sense of urgency on a number of times to try and force it. But the other people on the committee didn't believe in it. They basically said, yeah, we've heard you. We don't want to put prisoners where there's benzene. I, I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work. You, you make your case. Others make their case. Look, we've been doing editorial board endorsements. I've been on the losing side of a bunch of these, but that's the way it works. You make your case. Others make their case. There's a vote. You move on together. Mm -hmm. You don't say, wait, wait, I didn't get my way. I quit. I'm leaving. Well, I mean, he's leaving anyway, right? So you're right. He didn't have to do anything. The The one thing I agreed with in this letter is that they challenged the prosecutor, judges, and public defender to work together to reduce the jail population so that they don't need to be you know, 
build such a big jail, which I think we can all get behind. <laughs> but, That's a huge piece of this. But wasn't uh, that the role of Bill Mason as chief of staff? Bill Mason came in and what he did for his first months was to constantly meet with the prosecutor and the judges to get the jail population down. That was every week, sitting down with them, going over the prisoner list. So it's funny the Buddhist is saying we need to reduce the population of the jail because that's what he assigned his chief of staff to do. You know, I, I just want to talk a little bit about a couple pieces in this letter, if you don't mind. One, I mean, this this jail conversation has gone in all sorts of, of crazy directions over the course of the last year or two. You know, you talk about was there a pragmatic reason to withdraw from the steering committee? Yes, it's ultimately going to be on Ronane to carve out his path forward. Well, well, or, 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 or Lee Weingart. You, we, Excuse you're me, Ronane or Weingart on their path forward. But does this not, um, you know, being on that steering committee would somewhat tie his hands. He can reconstitute it if he wants immediately, whoever wins that. But if he doesn't want to, you know, the, the county's role here is to take care of the people in the jail. That is not Michael Malley's job. That is not the judge's job. Does this not open up room for the county executive, whoever comes next, to move forward in the best way that he sees fit to take care of the inmates that is his duty? Actually, Ronane has talked about working very closely with the judges, O'Malley, the city, and his whole approach is, I'm going to work with everybody to come up with something we all believe in. I, I think they might go with different contractors. I don't think the people that have been in it up to now will still be in it, but he's talking that way. And then Lee Weingart is basically <laughs> saying, yeah, I, you know, I've got a plan for, for a much cheaper jail. But but my bet is either of them will work collaboratively to to get it done, because otherwise you're going to be fighting the whole time. In the background is the need for a courthouse renovation or replacement. And, and you know, Budish and Jones in this letter also pointed out an issue here that 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 does need to be addressed somehow. You know, O'Malley does represent Cuyahoga County as their attorney. What kind of relationship is there if he was moving to help others sue over the steering committee setup? That is a, a very tenuous um, position and condition for the county to be in with its legal representation. And, and I wonder how that resolves. That seems to be a big, big issue here. I, I suspect what was happening there. And we talked about this long before a lawsuit was mentioned. Budish and companies seemed intent on getting this site chosen with literally weeks to go before Budish would be out of office, which most people said made no sense. Why would you handcuff the next administration? O'Malley's lawsuit would have gummed up the works long enough to make sure that the next administration could deal with it. And I suspect that's what his tactic was, that it wasn't really... And if they bought the site that, that's toxic, I think he would have pursued the lawsuit. But I think his real goal was to make sure that the next administration, which has to build the jail and run the jail, gets to make the decisions on what to do. Buddha's trying to lock that in as he's gone out the door. We talked about it repeatedly. Made no sense. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
All right, Courtney, this is your story. Why does Cleveland keep forgetting about artist Victor Schreckengoss' piece, Time and Space, which once graced Cleveland Hopkins International Airport? It's amazing what's happened with Schreckengoss over the years. The first, the zoo took down his great elephant sculptures, and they sat in a closet for decades before they finally went back up on the uh, Natural History Museum. Why did Cleveland so disrespect him on air in, in Time and Space? Yeah, this is a, a wild little tale. So, you know, this week, city council approved money to reinstall this sculpture at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. This 15-piece sculpture, it was kind of a nod to the way that early travelers use the stars to navigate. The sculpture includes the signs of the zodiac, the sun, the moon, and the earth. And and it was commissioned for when, when the airport's new entryway was put in place in the mid-50s. Fast forward to the 90s, there was a major renovation and the sculpture was taken down and and tucked away. And and one of our previous City Hall reporters, now editor, Layla, um, wrote a story back in, in 2015 when she was covering City Hall that, that they'd found this sculpture since it had been shuttered away since the mid-90s. And there were these efforts eight, nine, ten years ago to clean it up. It had suffered damage when it was tucked away to restore it. And then with the ultimate goal of putting it back in the airport. So 2015, the city approved money to fully restore it. It's been fully restored. It's been sitting in a protected climate controlled environment since then to make sure it doesn't get any damage. But right as airport officials were winding up to reinstall it in 2020, boom, the pandemic hit. And here we are now, two years later, and we're finally getting around to taking steps to reinstall it and bring it back into public view at the airport. What what about the pandemic would stop you from hanging up a picture? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> really get that. All, all I can think of there is the airport's budget. The financial situation was uh, very scary in 2020. And I can see why you wouldn't want to throw down $160,000. Maybe if your financial concerns are, are you got to, prioritize your spending. I mean, you know? Schreckengast is one of the signature artists of Cleveland. Well-known, the bowls he made. The, the art museum had a wonderful exhibit about him, I don't know, probably 15, 20 years ago now, that that was just alive with all of his stuff. It just seems odd. We got, I think the Superman thing is still down at the airport, right? But we don't have Schreckengast. And it's odd that we keep talking about it. Do you really feel like it's going to happen this time? Yeah, I, I will say when I, I tried to get a better understanding of how the timeline played out, I didn't really get good, solid answers from the folks I talked to. I, I think I still have some question marks about what happened since 2012 when this was around the time this was rediscovered well, by a decade. But but yeah, I mean, it seems like they've got a contractor lined up for this installation effort and they're moving. I guess we'll have to wait and see if it does go up. The plan is to put it above the central checkpoint. I was looking into this last night, Courtney, because I was writing my editor's note at the top of the Wake Up newsletter. And you had, you know, you and Layla had shared the story about how this was supposed to happen under Layla's watch. And I just thought that was so interesting. And we actually had a story in 2012, which longtime readers of The Plain Dealer, if they remember Mondays, we used to run this whatever happened to feature like, you you know, um, John. Uh, we, we get assigned every once in a while. You you get a whatever happened to. You either find your own or you get this. And it was like, what happened to this sculpture? And the city officials said in 2012 that it was in perfect condition, right? And I wonder, it was Evelyn Tice who wrote it. I wonder if her story about it actually made them go check, like, 
is this still here and what condition is it in? Interesting. Yeah. It it did suffer a lot of damage, it sounded like, from Layla's reporting back in 2015. Like there was corrosion, layers of dust, and it sounded like they had to re-gold leaf the sun, which which cost <laughs> a little bit of money. <laughs> Right, uh, Laura, you're now going to have people asking us to bring back that feature. <laughs> and I'll remind you, reporters hated that feature. It was like the bane of their existence that they I were know, doing. I know. I know. It was like if John to. Keener so, would come a lot, come around, you're like, no, no, right. I'll come up with something. So I, I'm going to blame you if that becomes a reader request. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, Tim Ryan is going all over Ohio trying to get people to vote for him for the U.S. Senate. We are, what, 13 days away from Election Day. Why is he telling us he has not made up his mind on the two statewide ballot questions, issue one and issue two? Well, I think he's trying to walk that tightrope, quite frankly. And both of these issues can are kind of weird because there are people on both sides of the political spectrum that would vote either for or against it. So it's one of those you know, weird issues or two weird issues. State issue one, of course, is amending the Ohio Constitution that would require judges to consider public safety when setting bail amounts for criminal defendants. Um, A lot of people say that that's already being done, that this is basically a solution in search of a problem. State issue two would bar non-citizens from voting in local or state elections, which is already illegal, but they would want to add that approach a CODIS to the state constitution that would clarify that non-citizens also can't vote in local elections. So I'm sorry, I got that a little twisted around. But Ryan said, you know, um, he's still, he hasn't really reviewed the ballot issues, even though we're like a week away from the election. And he said that, you know, he's collecting information and he wants to talk it over with his wife, Andrea. Yeah, this is one of those. Both of these questions are not necessary in Ohio because you already can't vote and the judges already can, should consider somebody's danger to the community when they're letting them out. On the other hand, how do you come out and say, I'm against that? Because it comes out like you're saying, I'm against judges considering the danger to the community when they release somebody. It's it's bogus. It's meant to do exactly what it's doing, to put people like Tim Ryan into a difficult spot. They're nonsense amendments meant to draw out the Republican base, but they're done in such a way that you look like you're a left wing nut job if you oppose them. And so he's walking the line exactly. Like you said, yeah, I don't know. You know, he'll tell us the day before he votes or maybe the day after. We'll have to see. Uh, have we, has the editorial board endorsed in both or is it just issue one so far? I don't far? think we've touched issue two yet. We've talked about it, but we haven't weighed in. And the editorial board did come out and endorse against issue one, mainly because the argument is it's unnecessary because judges already have that right. And the editorial board generally comes out against amendments that are unnecessary. It's today in Ohio. People on the Near East Side heard a frightening series of earth-shaking booms Tuesday. Laura, what caused it and what was the result of it all? Yeah, this was like one thing that you're like, wow, this could have been really bad. But as far as I know, no one was seriously injured, which kind of sounds amazing when you could hear an explosion in Cleveland Heights. But this was a fire at an auto shop on East 
East 145th Street in Kinsman. And the fire spread to a home and caused multiple explosions, according to these fire officials. One explosion was so powerful, it caused the airbags and a fire supervisor's SUV to to sorry to deploy and there was also a partial business collapse like a building collapse so yeah i don't know that we know all of the details yet but that's pretty crazy so they probably apparently they had flammable liquids and containers or something that went off or they're just not sure what caused them to go boom i i'm not exactly sure but yeah auto repair shop you got to think there's a lot of really flammable things that are kept in, you know, in containers and, and metal. And yeah, so they rescued a dog from a, one of the homes, but I'm glad that everybody else was able to get to safety. Uh, you brought up the dog, the rule of journalism. What was the dog's name? Oh, I don't ha! know the dog. Ha! You shouldn't have brought up the dog. It's today <laughs> in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb and City Council have finally nominated their choices for the new Civilian Oversight Commission voters created last November. Courtney, are they representative of Cleveland? And what has taken so long? They voted on this last November. Yeah, it, we're finally at a point of nomination. So so we are finally there almost a year later. I, the, the you know, they, they've been conducting interviews throughout the year. Uh, there's other things that have been going, but it, it seems like the process has been dragging, especially with the big voter mandate that put this in place. You think this would be higher on the priority list, but maybe there's things behind the scenes I'm unaware of. Anywho, let's talk about the names we do have now. Um, They do, this group of 13, uh, 10 nominees are to come from Mayor Bibb, three are to come from City Council. Bibb formally introduced his nominations on Monday. We don't know when Council's going to hear and confirm them, but at least the process is is now underway. And, And if we look at these 13 individuals between the legislative and executive branch, they do seem to be a pretty diverse group of folks in a lot of different ways, professionally, demographically. You know, there's folks who 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 study and 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 look into like civil rights issues and and justice reform issues, and then there's other folks who just seem like they're a little bit more like community members. And I, I think that's kind of the aim of this commission. But let's break it down a little bit demographically. Seven of the the names, um, seven of the folks are women. Six are men, eight are black, three are white. Um, one identified their ethnicity as Hispanic, another identified as Asian. And then, like I said, the the, the professional backgrounds, one, one person was a veteran. We've got LGBTQ representation here. We've got someone with a disability. We've got an immigrant. We do have one person who was formerly incarcerated for five years and homeless. But the charter amendment that voters put through specifically outlined different kind of folks who need to be on this panel. For example, one's got to be an attorney with experience representing victims of police misconduct or criminally prosecuting police misconduct. Now, I I don't feel 100% sure of saying this um, just because I didn't sit through every single interview, but based on the paperwork alone and the resumes they submitted, I couldn't ferret out whether, whether we actually have one of those attorneys nominated to the commission. And, and I, I, you know, I've asked the Bibb administration if they think these names tick all the boxes that the charter now requires, but, but I've yet to hear back. And if they don't, I would think that that would provide fodder for challenges for discipline from police officers because it's a charter thing. This, and it, and it wasn't optional, right? It, it dictated what they should be, right? Correct. Yes. 
so we got to see. So if if they don't tick all the boxes, this 13 member group doesn't hit all those required boxes. What what does happen next? Are they going to seat the commission anyways? That seems odd. You know, I did get the sense that behind the scenes, Bib and Council were somewhat coordinating their picks to try and make sure they were hitting all those categories. But I don't know what the next steps are here if 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 it doesn't. Forgive me if you don't know the answer to this, but with, but with such a widely varying group, the the chances of them reaching unanimous agreement on issues is pretty slim. Does the charter say what the vote has to be? Is it a majority vote? Is there a percentage that must be attained if, when they make decisions? I should know this. I don't have an interview off the top of my head. I do know the commission can't start its work until a majority are seated, seven. So I wonder if that majority rule carries through to other decisions, but yeah. I'll have to check on that. I keep asking people questions they don't have answers to. I get the feeling Lars in the background furiously pounding your keyboard to find the name of that dog. Let's do one more. The battle for the redrawn 13th congressional district in Ohio, one that either party can win, is suddenly seeing a rash of spending by groups outside Ohio. Lisa, who's doing all that? Well, there's a couple of, well, there's four groups that we looked at in our Cleveland.com and Plain Dealer article. Two of them are Republican funding groups. Two of them are Democrats. So between these four groups, they've dumped $10 million into the 13th congressional district race, which the incumbent Democrat is Amelia Sykes of Akron and her challenger, Madison Jesiato Gilbert of North Canton. And I'm telling you, I, yesterday I was watching the local news. There were three Three commercials back to back. There was one Sykes attack ad and two Gilbert attack ads. And so most of this money is being spent on attack ads. But if you add it all up, um, the total, so the GOP aligned groups have spent $4.9 million in this race. The Democrats have spent a little bit less, about $3.7 million on these races, but it's all attack ads. And boy, are they running. Well, I guess this all comes down to turnout. If does does do the cities turn out? They have not been turning out. We've seen in recent elections, and if they don't turn out, I would think that would steer this to the Republican. And the the control of the House is mm-hmm. at stake. It's you know some people think it's close. This is one of the very few toss up races. I mean, how many do we actually have? And, and the ads. So yeah, the ads surprised. on Jesse Otto Gilbert, are, you know, the attack ads against Jesse Otto Gilbert have pointed out her extremist views on abortion. They've been hammering that. The ads that attack ads against Sykes are saying that she's soft on crime and she's letting criminals out of jail. So those seem to be the uh, the themes of these ads. It's so sad that the whole idea of, of bail reform and justice reform which is aimed at taking away the penalty people in poverty pay and making an even playing field, have been corrupted by this conservative argument that this is, this is soft on crime. Nobody's being soft on crime. This is about doing right by everybody, treating everybody fairly. And what's amazing to me is how the Democrats let that get away. The Democrats just do such a bad job of messaging that they've lost that debate. What you hear everywhere is that soft on crime. So we'll we'll know all the answers, I hope, in 13 days. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. We've gone a little bit long. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast, including, on occasion, Attorney General Dave Yost. 